If you want to read between the lines and discover what it was like for those first students of color or read up on racist incidents at Penn, you'll have to dig a lot harder. Luckily for you, I've done my research. Hey guys, welcome to 1600 Penn, the DP's podcast about campus politics. I'm Caroline Simon. I'm Ari Goldfein. And what you just listened to was a senior named Kelly reading her excerpt from the Disorientation Guide, um, which is a compilation of different stories from activists on Penn's campus about um, different changes they think need to be made and how freshmen can get involved in making those changes. Y'all may have seen this. It was shared in my timeline on Facebook. I also had it emailed to me, and it was just kind of a compilation. Each author wrote about a different subject, so Kelly wrote on race. Um, A few other students wrote on things like being a first-generation student or mental health on campus. Um, And Kelly goes on to talk about some examples of race, the history of race on Penn's campus. Clubs in Greek life are incredibly popular and possess a great deal of power here at Penn. Some groups and fraternities have been around for years and claim to uphold the university's traditions and values. One of those groups is the esteemed and respected Mask and Wig Club, which was founded in 1889 as an all-white male performance group. The club has expanded and diversified since its founding, but most current Penn students don't know about a mask and work tradition that used to be a crowd favorite, minstrelsy. That's right, everyone's favorite comedy group performed The Golden Fleece in 1953, and the actors executed the show in blackface. According to an article from the Daily Pennsylvanian that year, Minstrelsy was an old mask and wig tradition, since the Twelve Founders had been fascinated by the color of burnt cork. Penn is famously proud of its history and tradition, but has managed to keep this shameful aspect well hidden. So the incident that Kelly's talking about um, happened in the 1950s, but she also points to a lot of other incidents that have happened between then and now um, that point to Penn's history of racism. So she talks about a pretty racist incident in the 1980s involving ZBT, Um, She talks about the incident last November when um, several black freshmen received racist group me messages um, right after Donald Trump won the election. And, you know, if you're a freshman stepping onto Penn's campus, you may not know any of this. For example, I'm a junior. I had no idea about masks and wigs. I'm a senior and I didn't either. Um, I'd heard about different racist incidents of Greek life, but I'd never heard the explicit detail of what ZBT did in 1988, which is all in her guide. Um, so it's useful for both upperclassmen and um, underclassmen, but... But kind of the larger point um, of why we're talking about the guide is to point to the issue of institutional knowledge at Penn and kind of why it's hard to make change over long periods of time, because students are only yeah. here for four years. Um, it's really hard to pass down things to the next generation of students and actually get anything accomplished. And I can tell you, I'm very involved in Penn Democrats. And, you know, you step in as a freshman, you're kind of getting your sea legs your first semester. You don't really know what's up. You maybe join a board your second semester and move up in the arbitrary hierarchy of your club. And yeah, even like most club board positions are one year long and it's really hard to do anything in one year. And um, you check out by the time you're a senior. So that's what, two and a half, three years of good work. Um, Yeah, and I just know um, I've been doing the DP since my freshman year, um, but it's really hard to, even in our coverage, to um, really get anything to change because of how quickly there's turnover with DP staff. Um, So I've kind of seen this issue from um, a journalistic perspective as well. So in order to get another perspective on this, we invited DP Executive Editor Dan Spinelli to Hi, talk. Dan! Hey, guys! (laughs) We invited on Dan to talk a bit about um, making change at Penn from kind of a different angle. 
So what so what has been your experience working in the DP and affecting change on campus? Wow, well, it is great to be on. Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're I'm, welcome. This is, this is, I don't know if you know this, people forget, but this is Penn's number one political podcast run through the DP. Yes. Number one. I've heard. Yeah. Um, Out yeah, of one. I think uh, I could not echo more what you were saying about how difficult it is to spur change just within a four-year period at Penn. And I think the first thing that I notice a lot about students is as they sort of spend more time at Penn, they grow more apathetic as to enacting change on campus. And that, I think, comes from sort of just the speeded up um, process that we have here with regards to like OCR and recruiting and um, searching for a job. Like a lot of people are less focused on what it means to be at Penn and more on what Penn will get them in the future. And I think Obviously, I haven't spent much time at other colleges, but more than other schools, people are, I think, less concerned with the surrounding community at Penn and enacting change in Philadelphia and and on campus, and more about what does my Penn degree and what do my skills that I, I gain at Penn. Right by the time, ta- yeah. In the real world. By so the time think, you're like a junior, you're already looking. You're like, okay, I'm about to graduate. It's all over. Exactly. Why don't I? Yeah. And I think the that. status of um, how many clubs work also at Penn somewhat. Um, assists in that as well because most juniors are like club leaders and then by the second semester of their senior year are sort of just doing their own thing and handing it off to someone else and I think when there's not a great transition of power especially in groups who where institutional memory is very important so Mm -hmm. certainly the DP is one where institutional memory is very important and we try to to you know give our successor a good idea of what knowledge they need to sort of do a good job and I think when that transition is, is not handled well, it sometimes leads to like a reversion back to the mean where like any progress that you made sort of just gets dialed back. And I think that gets exacerbated by the unique culture of Penn, which is just not very campus focused. We okay. don't have a lot of unifying school spirit. We don't have a lot of people who are dying to stay in, Penn, in Philadelphia, you know, after they graduate. So. Yeah. So what is, what issues you know do you find yourself addressing? You probably know the history of the DP better than most people on campus. What issues do you find the DP addressing over and over again without? I think people forget how much we talk about mental health. And I think it becomes an issue, unfortunately, every time a student dies. And people don't realize the spate of coverage that sort of has preceded each death. And it's something that the DP has written about extensively. Um, and I, I think you know, from stuff that I've noticed, uh, particularly this this petition that was written um, a few the, weeks ago. Could you clarify that? The... Yeah, the, the petition about um, the crackdown on, on unregistered social events, which sort of invoked some of this history about mental health. It was just clear to me that um, people were unaware, uh, specifically that there had been a mental health task force, of which there had not only been one, but it had reconvened. And Caroline actually wrote a story about this, but there had been sort of a second version of it. And I think people just don't know that. And that's that's not a, a bad thing necessarily, but um, I think people forget that a lot of what happens on a college campus is cyclical. Yeah. And the same sort of conversations that we're having now, unfortunately, about mental health, we were having four years ago uh, and, and, and you know five years before that. So I think that in particular is something that recurs again. Um, conversations about hazing and misogyny in Greek life happen all the time and it's something that you we sort of see uh you know jump at 
each like at other college campuses so like Penn State obviously went through this last year because they had uh, a student die because of a pledging ritual um, Penn luckily has not had a, had a situation similar to that but we have had students who died at fraternity houses actually quite a lot which is interesting when you think about that viral petition you know she talks about not to trash on this author but she she talks about partying as an outlet for students doesn't mention the ramifications of drinking with people with mental health but also doesn't mention the you know deaths have occurred it's like her lack of institutional knowledge fraternity parties at Penn have certainly not been safe for everyone uh in fact i be- i think the year actually before we entered Penn. Uh, so I, I think 2013 or 2012. Yeah. I can't say specifically which year. There was a death at Skulls, which was an on-campus fraternity that their house was close to sort of like Sweden Alumni House, like mm-hmm. near Van Pelt. Um, and a student uh, who wasn't a Penn student, he went to a different school, was there for a New Year's Eve party, and he fell off the roof. And his family actually won a settlement against Penn, but this is something that a lot of people don't know about, that there was a death on campus at a fraternity party. And there was also, you know, I could go on and on, but like there there was a death in the 90s. Um, there have been sort of horrific Greek life scandals that, that have hit Penn. This is the 30th anniversary of when ZBT was, uh, I believe, initially knocked off campus. That was yeah, that, in 88, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I and mean, that's what Kelly just talked about in her section of the guide was that, that racist incident involving ZBT. And, and I just think people don't remember that. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's actually kind of crazy, but... People have really short memories uh, on a college campus. So I wanted to learn more about the disorientation guide and how it was created. So I talked to two of the people whose work went into the guide. Um, Miru Usaga is a senior. Um, She was the one who reached out to all the different groups on campus and asked them if they were interested in contributing. Um, David Tai is also a senior, um, and he wrote the section about first-generation low-income students. Um, I sat down with both of them to kind of hear their take on why the guide was necessary, why we needed it now, and what they're hoping it will accomplish. I think that's like where the disorientation guide comes into play. Like, I think when I think about like the difference between being a freshman and being a senior, I realized there's so much like as a freshman, like I was looking for that I just like mm-hmm. didn't know, right? And like even as I and I found a lot of mentors um, or people that I look back now and would call mentors to say like, oh, that's where I got this piece of knowledge. This is where I got that piece of knowledge. Um, but still like a lot of it like was a very individual journey and it's always going to be an individual journey like for sure like everybody has a very different experience at Penn um but this guide was like a place where like we could like put together our heads and say these are the things that these are like the marginalized voices on campus these are the voices that often are not heard on Penn's campus because it's a big campus and there's so many organizations it's hard to see where like the gaps are to see where there isn't a space for some voice right and Mm -hmm. so um, I think this was like a collection of like just thoughts of like these are the voices that need to be uplifted and um, this is the stuff that I wish I knew as a freshman so that I could really dig deep into like you know I could feel like you know even though maybe I don't see everybody doing this I see a lot of people doing other things like this is valid. So it's not like Penn, Penn activists invented this guide. Disorientation guides as a concept are common throughout the United States. If you do a quick Google search, you can find disorientation guides from the early 2000s, from schools across the country. The oldest one I found is from before I was born, um, from Stanford. And it's funny and frustrating looking through these guides because while they are outdated, they are still dealing with a lot of the systemic issues we encounter today, be that racism, mental health, 
um, sexual assault, and they kind of are pervasive across the decades. They also kind of all have a really similar tone in that they're written in kind of a snarky, accessible way. They don't want to sound like an academic paper. They want to sound like how students actually talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And Miru took this into account when she um, was creating the guide. She talked to some of her friends at other schools who were involved in activism in other places to kind of get inspiration. It is snarky. I kind of like it. The, <laughs> the subtitle on the main page has like kind of a sarcastic smiley face. Which I thought yeah. was funny. Yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely pretty informal. Um, and it's just trying to get you to feel like, you know, you're comfortable approaching these issues. And it's not like it's upperclassmen talking down to you. You know, yeah. it's everybody in it together to, to try to make change. Um, but David talked to me a bit more about why um, he thought it was needed at Penn specifically. Um, kind of some of the issues about Penn that make it necessary for um, there to be some kind of guide for making change. The disorientation guide, like, just to build off of that a little bit more, I think it... I think it showcases how unique Penn is. Um, I think, you know, the students that are here, um, we really want to be heard, especially those from marginalized backgrounds. Um, I think Penn has fostered that in a way that have pushed students to grow in a certain way, um, and that has inspired many of us to really address what the systematic issues are, um, to bring to light some of the things that aren't necessarily talked about in the brochures that Penn is so proud and happy to put so much money in, dispersing all around the world. You know, I think David's discussion of kind of the brochure view of Penn is really fascinating. I, you know, when do you transition from stepping onto Penn's campus and it's beautiful and bucolic and a very cool city and you're amazing and everyone else is amazing and brilliant. Amy Gutman's telling you you're the best class that's ever <laughs> entered Penn um, and you're just going to do so much research and change the world and change Penn and you're going to leave unscathed and, un, you know, you're going to go under this incredible change but not suffer at all. Um, when do you go from that point of view sitting on College Green to accepting Penn for its flaws or trying to change its flaws to and acknowledging them? When do you make that transition? And David goes into both that transition and what that transition is like as a first-generation low-income student. And yeah, I think that drived me into like also considering contrib- contributing to this orientation guide because as a first-generation low-income student, there were just so many things that weren't being discussed, and when they were being discussed, again, like it was oftentimes behind closed doors. And I thought that through the disorientation guide, like we could shed light on that. Um, and I understand that like being first gen low income oftentimes comes with the identity of like being a minority within a minority. And I think there were so many obstacles to overcome being coming from that background. And so like again like ties into like my activism work or the work that I do because like again like I didn't see the drive um, that the university was doing to provide the support. And I think sometimes it does come down to like what are we doing as students to really getting our voices heard. And so I want to contribute to that as well. Another thing that Miru talked about that I personally found really compelling um, was about how she didn't want the guy to be perfect. I think so much of Penn we talk about the pressure to be perfect, the pressure to make it seem like we're not stressed and nothing's going wrong. Um, and she really wanted the guy to kind of take down that perception. So um, they weren't worried about everything looking completely glossy. You know, everybody was allowed to contribute. They really wanted to be inclusive. So. It's super decentralized. There wasn't mm-hmm. like yeah, you know, so an, an approval process. There no, wasn't not a comp- at all. Yeah, know, competition. And when we talked, we talked about how so much at Penn is so exclusive. Like there's four rounds of interviews to get into a club. But really for this guide, anybody who felt like they had been marginalized on campus was allowed to contribute. Something that I would want is like, I hope this guide can just be the first glimpse into what some upperclassmen think are some of the issues and that like freshmen 
or like first year students can continue just like being observant to continue to be observant I hope that like fresh first year students can continue to be observant and like continue to just keep on looking around and just question everything that they see going around because just because something is a norm doesn't mean it's right mm -hmm. just yeah. because something seems like it's like the standard doesn't mean like it has to be and mm -hmm. that like I think we're trying to show that like the norm doesn't have to be the norm like you don't have to join exclusive clubs in order to like, <clears throat> be like somebody who's important because everybody really should have a voice. Another thing I asked Miru about was kind of why she felt the need to make the guide now. Um, what about this particular political moment made it necessary to really convince freshmen that it's possible and necessary to be making change at Penn? What what happened? What, did something <laughs> happen? <laughs> Can you remind me? Like, I'm so confused what happened in 2016. I think there's just so much, there was just so much feeling last year. And like, I, I think last year was the first year while I was at Penn, within my, you know, my last year at Penn, where I saw so much momentum and so much like political energy and so much um, act, active work, activism happening on campus. And I thought, as a freshman coming in next year, like, would I know that any of this that happened last year happened? Like, is this energy gonna continue into the next year? You know, like, are there gonna be protests? Are there gonna be like, are, are freshmen going to understand why there are protests, why students are feeling a certain type of way? And I would really hope they could, right? And I would really hope that they feel like it's not like that they can be welcomed into the space of like doing the things that they feel is necessary. <clears throat> um, so I, I, I feel like, I mean, I would be wary to say like, oh, it's like the election or oh, it's this yeah. or that, but I think it's just like a collective year of just seeing activism work, whether it was like the fight for ethnic studies, whether it was, you know, the, um, whether it was the, like the Black Lives Matter protests, or if it was like all like these other different forms of activism that were happening last year, or like, or like the, um, we are watching um, uh, collaboration that happened. Um, like there are just so many different moments where I was like, is this gonna be remembered? Um, because that's the hardest part, you know, like, is it going to be remembered? Mm -hmm. um, because once we forget, it's hard to like, it's hard to like kind of know where to go forward. I also was curious about what the future of the guide is. You know, are there going to be people doing it next year? Miru's a senior, so she won't be here. Um, how are they going to make sure that this change carries on to the next generation of students? Because really, that's what this is all about: is making sure that change can last beyond the, just the four years that students are in college um, and, and so I asked her about that and her answer was pretty interesting. I don't think there's anything that we can do to make sure it happens and I don't know if that's also the need. Mm. I don't I think that these things arise out of a need for something more and if people feel like this is the continuing need in the future then they'll continue to yeah. to do it and obviously like I like love to like pass on information on like yeah. the logistics of like what is the Izu account and the Gmail like but that's like all like small things right those are not the big important things and the big important things are what is the need on yeah. campus and how can we address it in the most effective way one size does not fit all one form of activism will not solve every problem right mm -hmm. and so um I've already heard murmurings of like different forms of activism that are going to be happening in the next few weeks or etc and um that's inspiring to me because when I came into freshman year, I didn't see any that really, or I didn't know. Maybe I'm sure a lot of this work was happening. I just didn't know about it. So um, 
I think, I, I don't know what the future is. I don't think I can determine that. I don't think we can determine that. Mm -hmm. It's like up to like the student body and it's up to like the people who are organizing right now, like how they want to stay connected with each, each other, yeah. how they want to build like a community, a more loving community. Like how do they want to, how do we want to like work together and like continue to build? Um, there, I like, like this whole process, I don't, I don't see a direct tra trajectory except mm -hmm. for just like promoting change in whatever capacity yeah. students have. On the whole, this guide addresses a really intrinsic problem in that the problems we deal with at Penn, be they racism, sexual assault, assault um, alcohol abuse, mental health, they're systemic. They've lasted for decades and centuries, yet we're here for four years. How can you possibly affect change on something so systemic in four years? And why should you try if you only have four years and you're going to leave? Um, but Kelly says this well. So what is the point of drawing attention to Penn's racist history? Why not leave the past in the past? And why do I stay at Penn if I have all of these awful things to say about it? The fact of the matter is, this information is important. Penn claims to be a progressive and safe space for all of its students, but this information reminds us that Penn is an institution that serves best its own interests. Penn is an Ivy League, a pristine good school that wants to preserve its reputation. If we ignore its disturbing past and its flawed and frustrating present, we fail to improve it and make it a safer, better place. My thoughts are perfectly articulated in a quote I first heard at the African American Arts Alliance's gala last year. Travis Richardson, a United Minorities Council chairman in, in 1988 said, oh yes, an answer to the inquiries about why I or any black student am here if Penn is so bad most of us believe that strength is not in flight, but in fight. Penn is but a microcosm of America. I could not escape it if I tried. What I can do is try to make it better. Thank you for listening to this episode of 1600 Penn. I'm Caroline Simon. And I'm Ari Goldfein. The music was provided by Andrew Ellis. Joyce Farmer was our producer. And we'd like to thank the DP and everyone who contributed to this podcast. Um, and if you want to read the rest of the guide, um, you can see it in our show notes.